0: Thank you guys. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Uh, we are starting a new series today called Potential, and you can think of it as a series within a series. We're still in First Samuel for at least right now, and uh, we're going to be talking about this topic, though, of potential. On June the 19th of 1986, basketball fans were stunned with the death, the sudden death, of Lenny Bias. Uh, some of you may remember Len Bias. He was a at the University of Maryland, a star basketball player uh, named to an all-American team. Uh, he went on to be selected as the ACC Player of the Year. Think about this. This was in the 80s when uh, when the Tar Heels and the Duke Blue Devils were always combating with one another. And here, right in the middle of those two schools and their height of, of achievements and success, you have a guy who is named the ACC Player of the Year at a different school at the University of Maryland. He went on to hold, hold numerous records. Len Bias was... Um, first in free throws made, fourth in rebounding, third in field goal percentage. He was a 6 foot 8 unstoppable force. And what adds to the tragedy is that Len Bias would have been would have become a contemporary of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan went on to the NBA in 1984. Len Bias would have come along in 1986, and sports writers still to this day grieve over thinking about what it would have been to have a head-to-head between Len Bias and Michael Jordan and how Jordan may not have had all those trophies that he had because he had somebody that could have stopped him. He was selected to the Boston Celtics in 1986 NBA draft, touted as potentially the greatest player to ever play the game. He hadn't even put on an NBA jersey yet. That's the kind of talent that this guy had. And two days later, after he was selected to the Celtics, he was dead. He died of cardiac arrest from a drug overdose. You know, the history books are littered with stories like this of people who had tremendous potential, but that potential was never realized. Perhaps it was because of an injury. Perhaps it was because of some kind of substance abuse. Perhaps it was some some sort of off-the-field thing that was going on in their life. But for whatever reason, uh, their potential was cut short um, today I want to begin a new series called potential. Every one of us has it. Every one of us possesses great potential and especially as Christians what that we want to see that potential become is for our lives to be maximized for God's glory. Not only want God to bless our lives, but we want him to use our lives so that God can get the most out of our life for his cause, for his purposes in the world. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. How do we how do we uh, adjust our lives? How do we what, what habits might we build into our lives so that we can uh, achieve and become all that God intends for us? Our text for today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 31. This is jumping forward a little bit in the story. We're going to take a look at Saul, King Saul. And uh, you remember that David, he had been pursuing David and was after David, was trying to catch David. He had it out for him. And so what we're going to see here at the end of 1 Samuel, the end of the book, is how Saul's life comes to a tragic ending. All right, so if you would, let's stand together to read from God's Word. We'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. You may be seated. All right, so there's our text for today. I just want to kind of walk back through some of these verses. Let's begin at verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So there's a big battle that's been going on here toward the end of Saul's life between the Philistines, his, his nemesis, and the Israelite army. And so things are very, going very poorly for the Israelite army. They've been defeated time and time again. And so they decide, look, our supplies are low. Our numbers are getting low. Let's make one last ditch effort and go to the high ground of Mount Gilboa. Take a look at the map. You can see the Israelites are fleeing from central Israel up north to Mount Gilboa. It's west of of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where they go. And then you can take a look at some of the pictures and you can see why they decided to go to this particular spot because it's a point of really high elevation, very steep sides to ascend up. And they figured, look, if we're outnumbered, we got supplies low, let's get up on top of this mountain, let's pin ourselves in. And if the Philistines want us, then they're going to have to come up that mountain to get us. So they want to occupy the high ground in an attempt to try and get some leverage to get uh, the upper hand. Verse 2, it says the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Saul's sons, Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua. Verse 3, it says the battle pressed hard against Saul. So his sons are dead. And one of the archers, one of the Philistines archers that's standing down at the bottom of the mountain, he's got eagle eyes and he looks up on the mountain and he spots where King Saul is. He picks him out. And so, he, so they decided, hey, let's shoot some arrows into there. And so because of that, Saul was badly wounded by the archers. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, hey, kid, draw your sword, pull it out, and then run me through with your sword because if these Philistines catch me, Right? Oh, or they're going to run me through, but they're going to mistreat me before they do. And so I don't want to experience that. And so that's the scene of what's happening here. The armor bearer, uh, Saul's got, he's plugged with arrows. He's gasping for air. He's bleeding out. He knows the end is very near. He decides, look, let's just go ahead and not allow me to get into the hands of the Philistines. But it says, middle, the problem here, middle verse 4, but his armor bearer wouldn't do it. Uh, he was fearful of the thought of running through the king. And so therefore Saul drew out his own sword, committed suicide by pouncing on his own sword with the last bit of strength that he had. Now that is a terribly tragic way to go. Think about this. Saul's got his dead sons lying at his feet. His army is in ruins. He's the king of this land, and he's himself, and he's plugged with all these arrows, and he realizes that the end's in sight, and he jumps on his own sword. And so Saul comes to this tragic ending. But the story gets even worse, if you can imagine. Look at verse 8. It says, the next day when the Philistines came down to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Verse 9, so they cut off his head, and then they took his body, they stripped him of his armor, and nailed his headless corpse to the wall of a nearby city. Think about this for a minute. They took the great king Saul and they cut his head off and then nailed his headless corpse onto the wall of a nearby city, of an Israelite city. And if you continue reading in the story, not only did they do this to Saul, but they did the same thing to his sons. So there's Saul, his headless corpse, and his son's headless corpse nailed to the wall of this nearby Israelite city. Now you say, Gordon, that's a gruesome story. I mean, a headless corpse nailed to a wall. This is nasty. This is gross stuff. I mean, why would the Bible include a story like this? I mean, why is this in here? Well, that's, a, that's the right question to ask, right? Why would the Bible include information like this? There's a reason for it, and the answer is very simple. It's because the Bible wants for us to experience. The Bible wants for us to witness how, Paul, how Saul's life concludes. The Bible wants for us to know the information, not just for it to be lost into the history books, but the Bible wants for us to see, here's how Saul's life comes to an end. The Bible wants for us to experience, like a Shakespearean tragedy, the tragedy of this guy's uh, life. And so the Bible sticks our nose right in the story and lets us see the gruesome details of how Saul's life comes to a close. Okay, well, that's our text for today. That's our treatment of it, and so that brings us to our most important question: What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's kind of strange. I understand now why they didn't include this story in my children's books growing up, right? Uh, but I mean, besides that, what difference does any of this make to me? Uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles over to First Samuel chapter ten. First Samuel chapter ten. This is the chapter where Saul is first anointed to be the king. So the Israelites have been crying out to God. We're tired of these judges. We want somebody to reign over us. We want for somebody to raise up an army. We want for somebody to tax us. We want for somebody to strip us of our freedoms and our rights and occupy those in a more federal government type of a... I'm sorry, I just went off on a little thing there. But anyhow, so the the Israelites are begging for this, and God's like, uh, are you sure you want this? And Terry reminded me this morning that Saul's name, translated into Hebrew, actually means you asked for it. (laughs) How about that one? So uh, great irony there. But um, any case, so the Israelites are wanting this king. God finally capitulates. He's like, fine, you're not going to really want this king. You'll be upset that you actually asked for this, but I'll give you what you asked for. And so he gives them Saul. Now it says in chapter 10 and verse 9, this is kind of the account of when Saul is anointed by Samuel and he's brought forward to the people. It says when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel after being anointed, God gave Saul another heart. God gave Saul a fresh spirit. It says, verse 10, such that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and Saul was able to prophesy. Friends, we learn in chapter 9 that Saul was this really good-looking guy. He was a Pierce Brosnan-looking fellow. He was literally a head taller than the rest of the Israelites. He was a real standout-looking guy. And not only that, but now the Spirit of God is coming and has dwelt inside of King Saul. And he's, God's given him a new heart. He's given him compassion. He's given him mercy. He's given him patience. He's given him the, the, you know, all the different attributes of God himself. And so much potential exists in Saul. He's this really good-looking guy that people are excited about him being the new leader. He's got the spirit of God dwelling inside of him. But then contrast that with how Paul's life ended. And the Bible wants us to see how Paul's life, I'm sorry, Saul's life ended. And that should lead us to ask then, what went wrong? How could Saul with all this potential, the spirit of God dwelling inside him with a new heart. He was just he was he was born, he looked like he was born to lead. How could a guy like that, how could things get off the rails so badly? What went wrong in Saul's life? And if I can figure out what went wrong in Saul's life, then maybe I can avoid some of those things to make sure that I can arrive one day at my full potential. All right, so that's what we want to spend the balance of our time talking about. Three things that went wrong in Saul's life that kept him from arriving at his full potential. Number one, Saul took obedience to God lightly. Saul took obedience to God lightly. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 2. This is the prophet Samuel. He's speaking to Saul. Um, he says in verse 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Am- Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. So Saul's being given some very specific instructions. He's going to go to war against the Amalekites. And so Samuel's saying, hey, look, when you go to war against the Amalekites, make sure you destroy everything. He's very specific. He says, do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Wipe them off the face of the earth. This is genocide. This is God's instructions to Saul for what he's supposed to do. You say, Gordon, how could a loving God give an order like that? How could a loving God require and ask of Saul to go in and kill innocent children and babies and all these sorts of things and the women? How could he ask, how could God do that? Well, there's an explanation for that. And we need to make sure that before we jump to judgment and judge God for the orders that he gave him, that we have the right information. Um, to do that, we need to go back to Exodus 17. I'm not going to ask you to go there, but I'll just tell you what's there. Exodus chapter 17, and we discover there that when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert, when they were vulnerable, that the Amalekites used to come and wreak havoc on them. And what they would do is, when the elderly would begin to drop back from the rest of the, the of the group that was wandering around in the desert, when some of the weak or the or the or the or the cripple who couldn't keep up with the rest, the Amalekites would come in and would would attack these folks, would mob, would rob them, would kill them, would take any of their possessions from them. So the Amalekites were preying on people who were very vulnerable. And because of that, God wasn't ready to deal with the Amalekites then. The Israelites hadn't even gotten into Israel yet, but now he is ready to deal with them. And so he sends Saul and the Israelite army to go and deal with finally these Amalekites for what they have done uh, years back. And so Saul went out to war against the Amalekites and with this, these war instructions um, to go and commit genocide against them. Saul, verse 8 says, and so, so here's the report of what happened. And Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. That's not what God told him to do. Not only that, but Saul and the people spared Agag as well as the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the of the fatted calves, of the lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy all them. Now, is that what God instructed Saul to do? To go back and and to take, well, maybe God didn't really mean everything. Maybe he there's some spoils there. We want to take some of those spoils back with us. And so Saul arrives back in the Israelite camp, and there's Samuel to agree with him. And Saul's thinking to himself, hey, look, I partially obeyed. I partially complied with what God asked me to do. And so he rises back, look at verse 22. Samuel says to him, Has the Lord God as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, Saul had taken some of these best of the oxen, best of the sheep, and he had offered them up to God as a sacrifice, kind of like an appeasement. Like, God, I know we have brought some stuff back that we weren't supposed to bring back, but I'm going to make an offering to you with some of these spoils that I brought. And then that'll you'll see, God, that that was actually a really good thing. I was thinking... I was, I, was, I was sharp, God, and so I was doing, uh, you know, I might have been operating outside of what you asked me to do, but I was, um, it's actually a good thing. Well, God's no fool. God didn't want his sacrifices. God wanted his obedience. Friends, you can good intention God all day long. You can partially comply, but that's not what's going to make God happy. You can rationalize your actions, but at the end of the day, either you obeyed or you didn't. Jesus said, John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, or you'll you'll obey what I ask you to do. Friends, God is looking for people who are serious about obeying him. And if you and I want things in our life to keep heading in a positive direction, then you and I need to make sure that we take obedience to God seriously. Partial obedience will derail your potential. So when God tells you how to run your sex life, you need to take God seriously. When God tells you to go and apologize to someone or to make amends, you need to take that seriously. When God tells you about the language that you're supposed to use or the jokes that you shouldn't be listening to or sharing, we need to take that seriously. When God tells us about raising up our children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we need to take that seriously. Friends, halfway obedience is not obedience. The old college try its not what God is looking for. We need to obey God to the fullest. We need to take obedience to God seriously. You say, well, hold on here just a second, Gordon. It sounds to me like you're saying God expects us to be perfect. I mean, nobody can do that. Perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. So, I mean, if I can't be perfect in my obedience, then what exactly, what are we talking about here? Well, i got great news for you. In order for God to use your life and to bless your life, you don't have to obey God perfectly. But that was not Saul's problem. It wasn't that he was not a perfect person. His problem was that he didn't even really care about what God had asked him to do. He really wasn't even trying to do what God had asked him to do. He didn't take God's orders seriously. He had a separate agenda, a better thought of how he thought things ought to go. Friends, we've got to take obedience to God seriously. Okay, second thing that went wrong in Saul's life, number two, is that Saul failed to accept personal responsibility for what he did. He failed to accept personal responsibility for what he did. Look back at verse 21. Saul says to Samuel, it was the people right? That's, that's why we brought back these animals. That's why, that's why we've got all this loot that we brought back with us from our war with the Amalekites. It wasn't me. It was them. It was the soldiers. They were the ones who caused this to happen. Well, Saul, aren't you the commander of the army? Hadn't you been marching down the road with them and watching all these sheep and all these oxen being led down the road? Don't they take their orders from you? Saul knew what was going on. He couldn't put that off on the soldiers. Friends, refusing to accept personal responsibility when we've been wrong is a sure way to derail our potential. You say, well, why is that? Well, let me tell you why. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain what? Mercy. Isn't that what we need? God said that if you confess and you forsake, that you will receive God's blessed mercy. Friend, if you want God to be the God of the second chance for you, and He wants to be. If you want God to be the God of the third chance and the fourth chance, and He wants to be, He will be that. But you've got to meet the condition, and the condition is that we confess our wrongdoing, that we seek the forgiveness of God, and with the help of God we try to get it right and to forsake it and not repeat it, that we're serious about it. No matter how many times, friends, we may fall as Christians, if we follow that formula, God's mercy will always be there for us. But when we refuse to accept personal responsibility, when we put it off on somebody else or some other circumstance, or, God, you don't understand what's going on in my life, friends, that's not taking full responsibility. There's no verse in the Bible that says we can respond to God that way. And so as a result, God's judgment came on Saul. Now compare that to the response of Saul, who didn't want to take full responsibility, he wanted to put it off on other people, to the response of David when he was found in sin and committing adultery with Bathsheba. David said, Psalm chapter 38 and verse 3, here's his response. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones. Because of my sin. It's a guy who is just broken. As he says, verse 5, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. He's not putting this off on anybody else or circumstances that were going on in his life. He's owning it. Verse 6, he says, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day long. I go around my palace in mourning because of my sin. Friends, this is what separated David from Saul. It's not that David was perfect or more perfect. It's that David owned his stuff. He confessed his sin. He took personal responsibility for it. He didn't try to hide it. He was brokenhearted by his disobedience. It says he went around in mourning. And friends, this is why God treated David with mercy. It's not because he was more loved or better. It's because he owned his stuff, and this is why God treated Saul, rather, with judgment and harshness. Number three and finally, third thing that Saul did wrong is that he cared more about what people think, about looking right, I'm sorry, he cared more about looking right in front of people than he did in looking right in front of God. He cared more about looking right in front of people than he did in looking right in front of God. In other words, he cared more about what people thought than he cared about what God thought about what he was doing. Watch this happen, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 27. It says, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel turns around and he says these words to Saul. He says prophetically, the Lord has torn, just as you've torn my robe, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you on this day. And he's given it to somebody else who is better Than you. Now, wouldn't you think that if Samuel, the great prophet Samuel, had just turned around and said something like this to you, which was a rebuke of Saul, that you would immediately say, I need to get reconciled with God. I need to get back in a right place with God because things are not right. Things are out of alignment. Um, But look at what Saul's worried about. Look at what he truly, his top priority is. It says, verse 30, Saul says, Okay, 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 I did it. I've sinned. You got me. I'm red handed. I did wrong, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Do you see what Saul's concerned about here? He's concerned about how he looks in the eyes of the people. He's saying, Samuel, if the people see you walk out and leave, what are they going to think of me? See, he's more concerned about what people think than he is in getting back right in a relationship with God. Very different from David, who walked around the palace, mourning over his sin. Saul's priority was smoke and mirrors, spin and wind, style and profile, not truth in the inner recesses of his heart, not being reconciled with the holy God whom he had offended. See, friends, what God wants us to learn from Saul's bad example is that the number one concern of our life in every situation and every day is not how we are viewed in the eyes of other people, but our main concern in life should be how we're viewed in the eyes of of a holy God to whom one day we will all stand before and we will all have to give account. All right, let's summarize. What went wrong? What derailed Saul with all this tremendous potential that he had? What caused him to get, uh, for that not to be realized? Number one, he took obedience to God lightly. Number two, he failed to accept full responsibility. He tried to pass the blame off onto others. And third and finally, Saul cared more about what people thought than he cared about what a holy God thinks. Now, I got one more what difference does all this make for you, okay? And I want for us to think about this for just a minute. That's kind of what difference it makes to you on an individual level. But I want for us to think about for just a moment what difference this makes to us as a church family. Because we have tremendous potential here, tremendous potential to be a lighthouse to this community, to be uh, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ into this community and the people that live around us. I mean, like us going out there to Dove Creek the other day and being able to share that meal with folks and let people know that our church is here, that we care about the school, that we care about the kids that are there, that we love them and are praying for them and want to be a part of, uh, of their lives and a part of their success. Tremendous potential, but there's some things that we could do that could derail that potential from ever coming to fruition. Folks, if we want to see God bless us and use this place for, for lives to be changed, for souls to be won for Christ, we've got to number one take obedience to God as a church seriously. What does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like church attendance. It looks like being here. God said, "Do not forsake yourselves, the assembling of yourselves together." Hebrews chapter ten, I think, verse twenty-five. Don't quote me on that. It's in Hebrews chapter ten. But anyhow, what's God talking? My dad said that's right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so you know. A, taking that seriously. Uh, and so as parents who are trying to raise our children up in the admonition of the Lord, that means that we're, you know, as one of our church members had said, I, when I was growing up, I had a drug problem. My parents drug me to church every Sunday, right? And so taking church attendance seriously like that, it means taking giving seriously. It means taking serving God seriously. We've got the every member ministry thing going on here in the next couple of weeks. I mean, the only reason that our church does all the things that it does is because of you because of people like you who get involved and say you can count on me for this i'll be there to do this and because of that our church is able to offer up all the ministries that it does number two so number one taking obedience to god as a church seriously if we don't we'll derail all of our potential number two taking personal responsibility for our disobedience that is not making excuses for church attendance, not blaming it on the, on the alarm clock, not blaming it on a tough week that we had at work, but saying, you know what? I didn't come because I didn't get myself up out of bed. That's why I didn't come. And so being willing to take personal responsibility for the times when we're not being obedient, simply acknowledging our wrong, resetting our priorities and saying, God, it is my intention to do what you've asked me to do because I want to see our church grow and flourish and for all the things that you want to see accomplished through it, in and through it. Um, And so, you know, here we are as a church with tremendous amounts of potential, with tremendous amounts of ability to to reach out into our community, friends. And these are the things that we have to do as a church. We have to take obedience to God seriously. We have to take personal responsibility. When we've gotten off track, we've not done things that are right, not pleasing to God, and then reset those priorities and head in the right direction. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for this word today, Lord, as we look at the life of Saul, as we look at a life that had so much potential in it, just like there's so much potential in each and every one of us. And God, in order for that potential to be realized, there's some things that we need to do to keep our life in rhythm with you, to keep our heart hearing your voice. And so, Lord, as your Holy Spirit has instructed and prompted our hearts today, may we act on those things if there's some obedience in our life that needs to be realigned, then Lord, call us to it. If there's some things, God, that we've not been doing, that we should have been doing, Lord, help us not to put that off on somebody else. You don't want to hear excuses. You just want to see us reset our priorities and get our life in line with you. Lord, we ask that during this time of communion today, you might put your finger on some stuff in our life that you know we need to hit the reset button on. And Lord, may we commit to you in these few moments that we're going to reset our priorities. That Lord, you have all of us. Because we want to see you maximize our lives and our resources for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.